following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. One of the interesting things about today's sermon is that we are in Psalm chapter 28 on the 28th of May, so that works out really well for memorizing it. Uh, Reminded me of what it was, I just had to remember what day I was preaching on. Uh, So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 28, it is also uh, Memorial Day weekend, and it is also Pentecost. So... There was a lot. So I was told that I have to finish the service by 12.30 or I have to also serve the food. <laughs> so we will see if that happens. Um, as, you, as those of you who may know, Vince and I, we are not known for our short sermons. So um, <laughs> let us read the passage together and then we will begin. Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy as I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace to their neighbors, while evil is in their heart. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward." Because they do not regard the words, the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. They will tear, he will tear them down and build them up no more. But blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts, and I will be helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let us pray. Dearest Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and study your word together. We thank you always for the opportunity to hear your word preached and hear your word taught that we may be made more in your image through our learning We pray this weekend for those we are remembering, those brave soldiers of the past and of the present who have offered their lives for our country and for our freedom. We thank you also, Lord, for your Pentecost, for your anointing of us, your people, with your spirit, that you may dwell not only with us and among us, but in us. And we pray, Lord, that you will be glorified in all that comes forth in the days to come. For your name we pray. Amen. So as I said, today is Memorial Day weekend. It is also Pentecost, and I am going to try to weave those into this psalm as I preach today, Um, but uh, we will see how much time I have with all of that. Let me make sure I make one note down here so I can remember that. Okay. Um, Of how much time I have. Okay. Uh, So... The problem with this psalm is that it is very easy to break down for a sermon, but it's very hard to find an introductory anecdote to connect to. So the way I was taught to preach was to first outline the passage you were preaching, and then you're supposed to fill it in with, you know, fun stories about your kids, about your wife, about your family, maybe about some church members made more anonymously so they don't put you out, you know, whatever. This psalm is very weird because it covers a lot of different topics, uh, so it's easy for me to break down, but I didn't really have a good way to jump into it. So I picked up on the only image in the psalm that I thought was kind of weird, uh, was this image of being dragged down into death. So with that, I'm going to go with the only reference to dragging someone down in our popular culture, which is a movie called Drag Me to Hell. Scraping the bottom of the anecdote barrel is what I'm saying. Okay, so Drag Me to Hell is a 2009 American supernatural horror film 
directed and co-written by Sam Raimi, who is very famously known for making uh, the Batman trilogy, or the, sorry, the Spider-Man trilogy, and uh, he also was up for one of the Batmans, but they didn't get it. He wrote, he, he does all sorts of different movies. He also is the person who came up with, if you like horror, the Evil Dead franchise. He and his brother uh, came up with that, and this the same brother that helped him write this. Okay, so Allison Lohman stars as a, as a mortgage loan officer who, because she has to prove to her boss that she can make the hard decisions, chooses not to extend an elderly woman's mortgage. In retaliation, the woman places a curse on the loan officer so that after three days of escalating torment, she will plunge her into the depths of hell to burn for all of eternity. This is the best I could do. Okay, so with that image, we're going to kind of, it actually works out a little bit, but as we're going to talk about that, today we are going to examine the four postures by which we approach God's help. If you are a note taker for in commemoration of Pentecost Sunday, all of our points begin with a P. So it is the four postures by which we approach God's help. All right, so let's jump into it. All right, so first of all, we're going to take the first three verses. Let me read them again for you. Lord, I call to you, my rock, do not be deaf to me. If you remain silent to me, I will be like those who, do, who are going down to the pit. Listen to the sound of my pleading, pleading when I cry to you for help, when I lift up, your hand, when I lift up my hands to your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with the evildoers, who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. So our first posture that we see today is the posture of prayer. The posture of prayer. Now, Vince often likes to refer to me as the person who can properly pronounce the Hebrew words by the way, no one asked me, but I'll tell you anyway. It's pronounced chesed, not chesed. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and so today we're also going to have another het word. So you're going to hear all the phlegm in my throat come up today. Okay, so what's interesting about these first three verses, we're going to do a little bit of a Hebrew word study today, partly because we miss the word play and the poetry of the psalm when we have to translate it. This is just the nature of translation. Whenever you have to take any text, particularly a poetic text, in, from one language into another, you lose some of what is put in there by the poet. The poet is using words in very specific ways and using techniques in very specific purposes that don't always translate over. And so here in this passage, there are some word plays that are very important. Now in Hebrew, they don't have a concept of rhyme that we would in English because all of the words automatically rhyme with one another once you give them the correct, what we call declension or conjugation, right? When you put the pronoun onto it, such as I will pray, or let your name be said, or let them be dragged to the point. When you, in Hebrew, when to put that in, you put it on as an ending or as a initial letter. And so all words by the fact of that automatically rhyme with each other. So rhyming is not the way the poet has used to construct the poem. What he has done here is he is using the words themselves and playing with the sounds of the words and putting words together that sound similar but could not mean anything more differently. Okay, so with that, the first one I want to point out is the word Taharesh, make sure I'm reading my Nikud correctly, Taharesh and Taharash. Okay, Taharesh is the word that we see here in verse 1. It's the word to cry out or to call out, Lord, I Taharesh you, 
And this word is very common. It occurs 45 times in the Hebrew Bible. It occurs in places like 1 Samuel 7 verse 8, other places in Psalms like Psalm 83 verse 2 to mean to cry out. But what's also interesting is that the word, depending on how you pronounce it, remember which vowels you use, can actually reverse it and also mean the word to be silent. So it's not only the crying out, it's the inability to cry out that is sometimes encoded in this word. That becomes important, again, for us who live in the 21st century who do not read Hebrew, to understand that there is a wordplay here, because in the original Hebrew text, which is evidenced in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is evidenced even up until uh, the medieval period, did not have the vowel letters in it. You had to know from reading the verse how to which vowel letters you're going to use. In the Middle Ages, Hebrew was sort of diminishing as a language that people were using all the time. The readers of Hebrew were not as familiar with it, and so what they did is they started putting vowel symbols in. These are called nikud. Nikud also refers to the accents, which also are important. Okay, <clears throat> not getting too deep into all my Hebrew things I could do with you. All right, so... But what's interesting about that is that you, in modern Hebrew, they go back and they don't put the vowel letters anymore. Unless you have to for you to know which word they mean. So here what I'm saying is, when you read a modern Hebrew poem, it's just the consonant letters so that you would pick up on these word plays. But if they want you to know a specific word that they're using, they'll put the vowel letters in. And so what I'm saying here is the, the way you pronounce the word in the psalm is playing with whether you are calling out or being silent. Right? It's playing out with this tension of can God hear me? Now what's also interesting about this is that this root word, harash, also is a complete different word if you change the vowels around. So in here in Hebrew, again, hope I'm not boring you, hope you're finding this interesting like I do, the word is teharash, but if you pronounced it teharesh, it would mean to plow under or to harm. So remember, what's happening in this verse is we're looking at this idea of someone who is being harmed by those around them. And they are calling out to God and hoping that he hears them that they're not silent. You see, all of that is being encoded in the word that was selected for the psalm. From the very start, we're already playing with meanings of what's going to happen here. And what's also interesting about this is this idea of going down into the pit uses the word tehesha. Make sure I said, yes, I said tehesha, excuse me, tehesha. Right? Here we began the first word with tav het resh shin. And the next word that I just said is tav het Shin hey. It's a visual pun between silence and crying and harming and destruction. So from the very start, the poet has set the tone for what is being said in this psalm. This prayer is not a throwaway prayer. This prayer is, the way Romans described it, a groaning by which only the Spirit understands. A crying out from the deepest part, again, we're playing with this idea of the depths of the pit, from the deepest parts of the person who is singing the psalm, crying out for God's deliverance. So our first posture is the posture of prayer because it is in prayer that the deepest need, the deepest wound, the deepest part of ourselves is made revealed to God who of course already sees it, but we are bringing it to his attention in prayer. Let's move to verse 2 for our second word play. Okay, so in verse 2, listen to the sound of my pleading when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. 
So the word play here has to do with a word called mashal and meshech. Lovely final cough on that one. And masal is a word that is also a play of word itself. Because a mashal is a parable or a proverb, right? Um, and the word uh, comes up in a lot of instances, both in biblical Hebrew and in post-biblical Hebrew. And he's combining this with mashech, which means to grasp or to pull down. And again, the mashech is actually up in verse 1 at the end, but he's tying it in here. He's, he's playing with this idea of those who are being grasped, and in the words of the 2009 supernatural horror film, dragged them to hell. Now remember, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible period, their concept of death was that everyone goes there, right? And that's not necessarily somewhere you want to go. It's not equivalent to our conception of hell, that is, a place in which was prepared for the punishment of Satan and his fallen angels, and consequently and tragically, I would argue, those who have been deceived by him. Hell, in that sense, is not present in this idea. The pit here is instead the place where everyone goes. I was described to me by a professor in seminary that the place here is called Sheol. Again, a play on Mashal, right? Shin, Lamed, Shal, Mashal. The pit, Sheol, is a little bit like a cosmic waiting room. You just sit there forever, never getting anything. So it's not really a great place. It's not necessarily a place of punishment, but it's not a wonderful place to go. And the idea here is we are playing with this idea that in the, in the voice there is this concept that the place of death, the place where the dead go, is a pit in which no one, including God, can hear you. And so the prayer, right, the prayer is, God, hear me before these people kill me and I can't cry out to you anymore. Rescue me before you won't hear that I'm calling you to rescue me. Do you see you saying? It's like, it's the drag me to hell image. I told you it worked out. It didn't, like, when I first picked it, I was like, this is the only one I got. And I was like, hold on, wait. This actually, this is not a bad example. Let's go with this one, right? Because in the movie, the main character makes a mistake, a fateful choice, and she does so for her own advancement, and it costs her, it turns out, everything. The movie ends, I'm sure it isn't surprising to you since that's the name of the movie, that in the end of the movie, the demons come up and grab her and pull her into hell. I mean, they tell you that from the movie. So I don't think I've ruined it. Okay. So the three days that she's waiting in the movie, she's trying to figure out how can I get out from underneath this curse? How can I escape this impending punishment that's coming my way? And it doesn't work, and she dies at the end of the movie. Okay, so I ruined it. All right, so. <clears throat> but that's what the psalmist is talking about here. God, I need you to hear me so that I don't get so far away from even you that you cannot hear me anymore. Right? So again, different conception of life and death than we might be functioning with in our modern world or our Christian world, but one that is important for the way the psalm is being to be understood. All right, so in verse three, we get to the plea, right? The first part is like, hey, God, hey, hey, I'm here. Hey, hey, can you listen to me? I'm, they're kind of getting me. Hey, this is what I need. Verse three is what the request is of the prayer. 
Do not drag me away with the wicked, with the evildoers who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while evil is in their heart. And the word play here is the juxtaposition of the words neighbor and evil. So in our English language, neighbor and evil look completely different. They don't rhyme. They don't even look like each other. But in Hebrew, it's the exact same root word. Re'ah, or ra'ah, right? Resh ayin. And in fact, when you look at that, there's a little bit of discussion sometimes in some of the translations, as particularly when we get to things like Psalms and Jeremiah, where they talk about both friendliness and evil, about which one they want you to use. Again, there's no vowel letters to tell you the difference. You just had to know that. But they're also playing with that as they also use words that are very similar, right? So we have this. So in the verse, it's re'achim v'ra'ah. With their neighbors and evil is in their heart. Putting the two words that are identical consonantally almost as close as they can get them together. They got to put the ending in there to say there, but you know, they stuck them together. And the play they're doing here is that duplicitousness that the psalmist is noticing in these people, his enemies, or into those that he's calling the wicked and the evildoers. That they are treating everyone very kindly, Everyone's their friend. They're getting invited to the HOA barbecue for Memorial Day. Their lawn is perfectly mowed. Everything is perfect. Everyone thinks I have very high esteem of them. But the psalmist knows what is going on behind the closed door. That these people say one thing to your face and another to their friends that they are plotting against you, that they are plotting not just evil, Rob encodes, and you may see this in the translation that we have up, the idea of malice. It's an active evil, an evil of commission, not just of omission. You do ra'ah. You are ra'ah. It is what your character is in many ways. So, again, the word is very common. Rea, to mean friend, occurs 195 times in Scripture. Ra, or Ra'a, meaning evil, occurs 661 times. It is perhaps the most common word for evil in Scripture. And what is very similar is, I told you in Isaiah and Jeremiah, we have a lot of problems sometimes about translating which ones they're doing. Here's a great example. In Jeremiah 12, which I'll read to you. Righteous are you, O Lord... When I complain to you, I love that verse, right? God is righteous and he's like, what is it this time, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah knows that he can complain. That that's, I mean, the whole book of Jeremiah is pretty much like, God, really? 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 I mean, God, you know, just to give a background, Jeremiah, God tells him from the very good start, you're not going to have a great life, bro. You don't get to get married. You don't get to have kids. By the way, you're going to watch your city and your entire society burn in flames. And I need you to tell them about that. Oh, and they're not going to believe you, Jeremiah, because it's my will. So, like, you know, if anyone is a candidate for lithium and antidepressants in Scripture, it is Jeremiah, probably closely followed by the writer of Ecclesiastes and Job. Okay, so... which are also really boring, which are really sad books if you don't know that. Okay, so Jeremiah 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I will plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. 
But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the for the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. For they say, He will not see our latter end. If I, and the Lord answers, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the middle of the wilderness of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. Right, so, and it continues to go on from there in which God is going to say, I'm going to punish these people. Right, but the play here that Jeremiah is picking up on is, God, I see that these people are prospering in their evil. This is an ongoing problem that the Bible talks about. The idea of evil in our world. Why is it that evil, wicked, treacherous people seem to be prospered? And Jeremiah uses the image of a garden and says, God, it looks like you're the one that planted weeds in your own garden because you let them grow. And God says, yes, but I'm going to pull them up. I'm going to destroy them. What's very interesting about that, again, to think about Romans, there's a lot in the New Testament that we miss, again, because many of us are not as familiar with the Hebrew Bible, is this idea when Paul discusses the impending day of wrath. In the beginning of Romans, he has a whole litany. It's very interesting because he basically throws everyone under the bus, because he sets you up to make you feel like you're the good guy. He says, there are those who hold one day higher than another, and there are those who hold days equally. There are those who have a law unto their own, and there are those who keep the law even though they do not have a law, and you feel really good about yourself. You're like, that's right, Paul, that's right, that's right. I mean, no one's as good as I am, right? You know what I'm saying? God is well pleased with my righteousness. And then Paul says, but you are heaping up wrath in the day of judgment. That everything you do, even the good things you do, because you're so prideful in them, is going to come down on your head. And what's interesting about that is that that's how God chooses to solve the problem of evil. He chooses you, he chooses to let us earn our wrath. Beginning in Genesis, we have deserved wrath. Our father and mother, Adam and Eve, ate of the fruit against the one command. Bro, there's one rule. Just don't, just don't eat the tree, okay, bro? Couldn't even do that. Right? Couldn't even do that. And so they ate of the fruit and they became aware of their sin. That is, that they had been cut off already from God. And they are in a process of falling away from God in as a mysterious and cosmic sense. The dying has begun, if you will. And what's interesting is that it doesn't stop there. Sure, Adam and Eve try to cover themselves in leaves, and God's like, all right, this is not what clothes are, but you know, you two are just the first humans, you didn't know that because we were naked before, but we have to fix this because you've messed up the world already. Okay, so first of all, what's the first thing that God does for them? He kills an innocent animal to cover their shame, Right? The idea that they were ashamed before God, which is why they hid themselves, God covers it because of someone else who has to pay the price for them. 
And then when he talks to them, he says two entities in the universe at the time are cursed, and guess who it's not? It's not Adam and Eve. It's everything they touch, right? Adam and Eve are never cursed directly. They suffer the consequences of their sin. Adam, by the toil of your hand, you will root bring forth your food, right? Before he lived in a perfect garden where everything just kind of appeared. Now he's going to work for it. And, 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 and the work is now going to be hard, is the point. And Eve, your work, remember her name means the mother of all who are living. Right? It's a wordplay because Adam means ground. He says, the ground is cursed because of you and your toil will be hard. Eve, your labor, that's why we call it labor, will be hard, and you will see your children fight, right? The beautiful point of the Proto-Evangelion we have, he will, the serpent will strike his heel, but he will strike his head, plays out almost immediately in the next chapter when one brother kills the other, right? She immediately has two kids, according to the story, and one kills the other, because of jealousy. And that's the way we've all been. We've been watching our kids fight for generations. But I mean, you are not cursed. Whose cursed is the ground, and the cursed is the serpent. Right? But the consequences of sin radiate out from humans. So if you want to know why does evil exist in the world, the answer is very simple. Because of you. You and I are why evil exists in the world. It's not God's problem to fix, but he's going to. God did not create the evil in the world, he tells Jeremiah. He just allows it to bear its fruit. Because in order for him to show his righteous, holy justice, he's got to show us that we deserved the wrath that was coming because of our sin. He's got to prosper us for a season. What's very interesting is that in the poem, oh sorry, in, in Jeremiah's poem, it talks about he will not see our latter end. See, the evil ones don't think that judgment is coming because they are so successful. I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I'm loved, and I'm living seemingly forever. Who, where is God to judge me? But the end is coming for all of us, right? And that's where we come back to Psalm 28. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Do not drag me away with the evil, with the, the wicked, with the evildoers who speak friendly with their neighbor while malice is in their hearts. What the psalmist is saying is the, we, the weeds of the world get entangled with the good crop. And when you come to pull them up, God, don't rip me out as well. Don't let me get caught in the crossfire of the day of judgment. Okay, so our first posture is the posture of prayer. Our second posture is the posture of payback. Because it's not always what we want that is God's justice. It's not in our time, it's not in our ways, and we would really like to have a box of popcorn and a front row seat when it's doled out. And God's like, yeah, that's not how I was planning to do it. But we want payback. Let's read the verses. Verses four and five. Repay them according to what they have done, according to the evil of their deeds. Repay them according to the work of their hands. Give them back what they deserve. Because they do not consider what the Lord has done or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and not rebuild them. Notice that there is very similar language here to what we saw in Jeremiah 12. This idea of God, give them what they deserve. Don't forestall your justice any longer. 
Now, what I'm saying here is that payback is part of the cosmic system by which the world works. That's not very comfortable or fun in our culture to think that everyone will have to repay what they owe to God. There's a lot of discussion in the past hundred or so years of church theology, of popular opinion, of discussions that we have one another about whether it's is it really just for God to send people to hell? And again, what was the answer? The problem of evil is not God's fault. It's your fault. God doesn't send you to hell. You're sending yourself to hell. Right? God is sending you the lifeline. And you're saying, I don't need that. I'm righteous in my own actions. I'm justified in my anger. I don't need you, God, when all we need is God. So payback is part of the system, but we're not the ones who are keeping the tally. We're not the ones tasked by God to ensure that everyone pays back what they owe. Because we're not owed anything. We're the owers, right? And again, the, 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 the poetry of the scripture is very rich in this. The, the, first, the, the one that comes to mind when I was thinking about this is the idea of the, the proverb, the sun and the rain fall on the righteous and the wicked, right? And God gives everyone food to eat from the land. Right? We are not the ones who deserve the accounting. We deserve to be accounted. And we have to remember that, that when we enter into the posture of payback, we have to make sure that our motivations for saying, God, it's TikTok, it's time for you to get them to pay it back, are righteous themselves. So it's not wrong for us to pray for God's justice to come into the world. God wants his justice to come into the world. The problem is, is why are we calling for the justice? Do you want the justice to start with you? Because that's also part of it, right? Part of the payback is that you also have been wronged by the evils of other, which is what the psalmist is saying. God, pay them back for what they have done to me, what they have done to their friends, what they have done in the world. But we cannot pray for God to give them something he doesn't give us. We have to remember that we also stand in the position of the wicked evildoer who has abused and neglected and harmed those around us. And while we may claim the blood of Christ and his grace and mercy to cover and pay back our debt, we still had a debt to pay back. So the payback cuts both ways. All right, now, <clears throat> we move to verses 6 and 7 with our third posture, the personal posture. And what I'm going to point out here is at the end of the psalm, we see very similar language, but it is inflected or directed in two different directions. Okay, so in verses 6 and 7, it says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard my pleading. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Hit my heart trust in him, and I will be helped. Therefore, my heart celebrates, and I give thanks to him with my song. This posture is the personal posture, the personal relationship that we have with God. It is on the, the basis of our personal relationship with God that we even have the opportunity to pray, right? Because again, we forget that. It's very easy for us after Hebrews 
to remember that we did not always have the unfettered access to God our Father that we take for granted, right? That's why the writer of Hebrews says, go boldly into the throne room of grace, because your initial posture should not be to run right up and sit in the celestial king of the universe, creator of everything, visible and invisible, and be like, hi, daddy, can I have some candy? Right? That's what the Bible is playing with, is that this is the most powerful entity in all of the universe and you can just run up and ask him whenever whatever you want and he's going to listen to you do you understand how much of a privilege this is that we have in christ for centuries Jeremiah and the prophets and David and the kings and Moses and Aaron and the priests are pleading, wanting God's ear. And they have to do all sorts of things to try to get his attention because they're worried that they are unworthy to even pray to him even though he's told them they can. And we cannot take advantage of our privilege that we can just run right in there. In the book of Esther, it says that Esther has to go to her husband, Azahurius, who's the king of all the land, to ask for favor. That is, don't kill me and my people. That's a reasonable request, right? To ask of your husband, please don't murder me and all of my kin, right? Seems fine. But she's worried that just the asking will get her killed. Because the tradition of the land was that you don't just go into the king's presence if you're not on the agenda for today. You don't just get to show up. Because that's what like the majesty and glory of being the king of kings is all about. Right? And so what does she do? She fasts for three days and she has everyone fast and pray for God's favor. And she shows up, and what's funny about that is Azarius is like, oh, hey, beautiful, what you want? It, do, he, he, it doesn't bother him that his beautiful wife, and she is beautiful because that's why he picked her. Anyway, that's a side point about Esther. You know, um, his beautiful wife shows up at court one day. She's not on the agenda. He's like, hey, babe, what do you want? Right? But that's not how she saw it. And what the psalm and the Bible is saying is that God, infinitely higher than any human king, has even more regard for us. We don't have to fast and pray for three days to go to God. We just pray to God. And we can ask him all sorts of silly things. Like, Daddy, can I have some more candy? You've already had candy. Why are you wanting more candy? I want more candy. My four-year-old loves Oreo cookies. He will eat a party size of Oreo cookies by himself if we let him. My wife Katie will confirm that pretty much the one thing he always says is, hey daddy, can I have a black cookie? With a black cookie in his hand, he wants another black cookie, right? That's what our requests sometimes to God sound like to him. I <sighs> know you've already had a black cookie. Maybe you should eat some like carrot sticks. No, I want a black cookie. And it doesn't change God's feeling towards us. Do you know what I'm saying? I get frustrated with him. I'm like, no more black cookies. You need to eat something else. He's like, what about a yellow cookie? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> anyway, so it's very, you know, <clears throat> But God is like, he wants to give us all the black cookies in the world. He wants to give us all of the wealth of his prosperity. He wants to give us everything, but he also wants to give us the good things too. Okay? So the justice of the payback posture also comes in our personal posture. That we are willing to pray because we are able 
to pray. Right? And, and, and we can celebrate that God hears us. I think of a very famous story in the book of Kings in which Elijah is fighting the 450 prophets of Baal. A very famous story if you know this one, right? He's going to have a battle and he's like, it's like the throwdown, the, you know, the WWE World Championship belt tournament is what this idea kind of is. Like one dude against 450, you know, macho man, Randy Savage style showdown. Showed my age with that reference to the WWE. Okay, so <clears throat> cage match, right? He goes up, right? What's funny is he was like, why don't y'all go first? There's more of you than me. And what do they do? They want to make sure Baal hears them, right? So they're crying and screaming and sacrificing animals and dancing around and playing all sorts of instruments. And it's funny because what Elijah says to them, he goes, doesn't look like he hears you. You need to be a little bit louder. There's 450 of them. They need to be louder. Go a little bit longer. Crying, screaming, cutting themselves, throwing blood everywhere. He's like, maybe he's in the bathroom. Screaming some more, cutting some more, dancing some more, getting wild and wild and wild, right? And he goes, maybe he's asleep. And what's funny about that is that it's playing with his images that the gods are like we are. Sometimes they're indisposed. Ball's got to go on vacation, right? Got to take some time off, find himself, right? He's got to go to the bathroom, right? Can't answer your quest right now, I'm pooping. Or <laughs> he's asleep, right? And so this idea, the, the, the story plays with this image that the gods have to be made aware that you're requesting them, and then you've got to hope that they're not like, you know what, um, I, just was, I was just about to clock out the office today. Can I, can I like, you know, can I save you from the Assyrians tomorrow? Is that okay? Right? And Elijah, of course, plays on the other image, right? He makes it almost impossible for God to answer his prayer because he, he dunks the entire altar under like 50 gallons of water, and then God's like, fire, instantly as soon as Elijah prays. Because that's the whole point, is this God hears us, he answers us in a miraculous way, but all, we don't know where he is. That's the whole play. Okay, now, with that, that's what we are. We can celebrate that God gives us what we want in the moment that we ask it. Now, some of you are probably thinking, well, I have prayed to God for years and he has never answered me. And the answer is, he has answered you, you just didn't like the answer he gave you. Because the answer may have been, wait, you can't have any more black cookies right now. Or no, you can't have any black cookies. But God, I want black cookies. I said, no, more black cookies. But God, I want black cookies. See, God, I've been waiting for years and you won't give me black cookies. This is my four-year-old, by the way, yesterday. <laughs> Having a complete meltdown. Because the popcorn that he wanted was not the popcorn we had given him. Even though he asked for popcorn. <laughs> and we got him the popcorn he wanted. He didn't really want it. Because he wanted other popcorn. And we laugh, but that's us right? That's us. God answers us when we ask. He doesn't answer us the way we ask sometimes. And we have to understand that my heart will celebrate and I will give thanks to him in my song regardless of what the answer is. Okay, so our first position was the posture, or sorry, our first posture was the posture of prayer. Our second posture was the posture of payback. Our third posture was the personal posture we have with God. And the fourth one in our final two verses of the psalm is the people word posture. Now, again, I want you to look at eight and nine in the context of six and seven. So let me read eight and nine. 
The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. Save your people, bless your possession, shepherd them, and carry them forever. So now the direct object of the verb is not me, it is them. God's favor is not only for us individually, it is also his favor for us collectively as his people. And what's interesting about that is that God wants his people to prosper. But the prosperity he has is not always what we want. Because what is, he says, the strength of his people, the sal- stronghold of salvation for his anointed, save your people, bless your possession, shepherd them forever, carry them forever. Nowhere in the psalm does the psalmist want or note that the prosperity of the wicked should come to his people. Right? He doesn't say enrich them, empower them, prosper them, wealth and power and glory and majesty in this world. He says, take care of us, God. Because again, the point here is that the prosperity of the wicked occurs because of their wickedness, right? The fruit of wickedness and the fruit of righteousness are not the same. And yet we are so confused in our world. This is such a problem for us in the modern world, right? Is that we are so obsessed with the way we compare to one another, particularly in the age of social media, where everything is filtered and processed and purified so that everyone is beautiful and successful and intelligent and wealthy. And we are easily bombarded with this message coming into us that that's the way the world looks. Not should look, not we'd like to look, that it does look like that. That everyone is that beautiful, that everyone is that powerful, that everyone is that wealthy. And then we look at ourselves and we're like, why am I not? Recently, the Surgeon General has released a report or a a recommendation that children under the age of 18 should not be on social media at all. Now, some of you are saying, amen. Amen. But what they're saying about that is that we are so impressionable that we adults are being massaged into certain ways. We've seen in the past couple of years that full-grown adults have gone completely off the rails because of something they saw on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikToks, go on so and so forth. We have to battle with our own minds against this worldly persuasion that bombards us. And what the surgeon general is saying is children who are so much more impressionable than us shouldn't be on it. And I actually thought about this. I was like, you should just go all the way and say the social media is to our mental health what cigarette smoking is to our lung capacity. He should just go ahead and tell none of us to be on social media, because some of y'all can't handle it. And that includes me. My wife and I have been on a journey for the past few years of how much social media we want to engage with. And I have taken the strategy personally of trying to co-opt the algorithm to my own plan, which is if there's a cute baby picture, I click like. So that as soon, the idea behind that is that if I only like baby pictures, then soon I will only see baby pictures and I don't have to put up with all the rest of your foolishness. It's not working so well, but I do see a lot of cool baby pictures now. Okay, so, but the people word direction is the way we should also pray. The psalmist closes the psalm prayer. Remember, we should think of this psalm as a prayer. He closes the prayer by turning his gaze away from himself to those around him, to the neighbors who are being abused, and to his people who are in need of God's blessing. 
right? So the fourth posture is the people word posture. So today we looked at the posture of prayer, the posture of payback, the personal posture, and the people word posture. But in this psalm, we also see the seeds or the nucleus of the ultimate message that we have. Our posture of, and I have to use the P word because of my alliteration, propitiation. Propitiation is a big fancy law, wonderful scrabble, scrabble word, um, which means atonement or forgiveness. Right? It's the whole mechanism by which the Bible actually restores the way that we are with God. Originally, propitiation was in simple sacrifice, seen first in the story of Cain and Abel. Continues on, gets a little bit more refined, and only certain people can do it because of this idea of God's transcendent holiness. And we see in Leviticus, the Levitical system with the types of sacrifices and the means of sacrifice and the priests and the mechanism of the tabernacle. Continues on, and we see in the time of David and Solomon, the building of a majestic temple whose presence reminds us of God's presence among us, but also reminds us of the purity of God in its separations, right? All the courts were to remind you that you can't get close to God without sacrifice, okay? And then we move forward into the prophets who say, God doesn't need all of this. What he needs is for you to have a righteous heart. But the problem is, is you can't make yourself righteous, That's the bad news. The good news is, is that God can make you righteous. He can put a new heart inside of you. He can give you a new mind. He can give you a new spirit. And what the resurrection teaches us is he will give you a new body so that no aspect of who you are will remain corrupted by the sin uh, that we brought in the world, but of this world order, right? That's what the resurrection and the life to come is about, is that God's got to reboot the matrix, right? And he's got to reboot us so that we can live there. So the bad news is that we need propitiation. The good news is that God provides propitiation. He does that in himself. So one of our announcements is that I am leading a study on YouTube and our church YouTube page about the creed. And the reason why I wanted to do that is that Again, I think part of it is we need to continually remind ourselves of what we really believe about the gospel. Because we throw around the word gospel a lot. But we need to know what it is. Right? And the, 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 the century around when the creed was being formed was about this discussion. What is the gospel. We've never actually ever answered that question so that we could be done. We keep asking it. We keep needing to answer it. But the gospel in summary is that you have sinned and need a sacrifice, but a sinless sacrifice has been provided for you so that you can stand in the place of righteousness in the life to come, right? Hell and heaven are about our positional relationship with God. I don't know if you knew this. I'm getting a little bit off script right now, but I'm going to talk about it because it's coming to me. You know, heaven and hell are actually not that far apart in the afterlife. Satan does not control hell. He doesn't have a little pitchfork. He pokes everybody else. Satan is the one getting poked by the pitchfork. He's the one being punished in hell. What he's simply done is, in the words of a 2009 supernatural horror film, dragged us to hell with him. Because we have severed our relationship with God. Right? He deceived us in the garden. He deceives us today. He deceives us every day. And he's trying to drag us down away from God. But in the redemption of Christ, we are reconnected to the maker of the universe in righteousness. And we do that because Jesus bridges the gap, right? This is what the creed I'm going to talk about in this week's 
episode if you want to watch it, um, is about the incarnation and why the incarnation is important. Christ had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be both so that he could bridge the divide between sinful humanity and sinless, perfect God. Okay? If you want more about that, come watch my video. Okay, so the gospel is about that bridge. And the gospel is also a reflection of these four postures. We ultimately come to salvation through prayer. Right? It's not some magical incantation. It's not some magical ritual that we do that transitions you from the world of sin to the world of righteousness. Right? We talk about that. There's nothing magical about baptism. What's the transition for you is that you have given Christ control of your life because you've asked him to save you. But part of that is that there has to be a recompense. This is what we get confused about in America a lot. People pray a prayer, but they don't really let the recompense work, right? Because what we want to do is we want to live righteous and get our lives cleaned up and then come to God and let him do like the last 1% and then we're good. Or we want God to give us fire insurance so that we can do whatever we want to. It's not like that. Sorry. Right? There has to be an exchange, a payback. Just as Christ gives us his life, we have to give him our life. And how does that manifest itself in our daily thing? The Spirit is going to work inside of our body transforming it from the inside out so that we start looking more and more like Christ, not that we achieve sinless perfection in our own power, but that we start emulating the sinless perfection that we have already been accredited to in Christ. Is that making sense? So that's what, the righteousness is not how you earn salvation. The righteousness is how you show other people that you have salvation. Okay. And it's got to be personal. It's got to be a relationship with you and God on your own. You, your, your mama and your daddy and your grandma and your granddad can't save you by their salvation. Only Christ can save you by his salvation, which you have to accept and exchange to do. But the gospel, and this is also a part that we miss sometimes, is people word. Right? That, that part of the working out of righteousness in our life is that we have a communal relationship with God. If the Spirit of God dwells in you as a believer, and the Spirit of God dwells in me as a believer then the Spirit of God dwells in both of us simultaneously, and that draws us together into one body. Dan used Ephesians, and Ephesians has a wonderful example of that we are being built together like little human bricks. We are being connected together, right? I wish the, the, that Paul and the... the um, Rise of the Bible had known about Legos because I think Legos is a really good example, right? Where one, you know, Legos fit together because they have like knobs and little grooves, right? And the knobs and grooves go together and that's what holds it together, right? You can build a Pac-Man or whatever it is like my little boy did yesterday, right? Because we have to fit together. And why do we fit together? Why can't we just have individual solitary relationship with God? Because you are not perfect yet. Some of you did not spend probably too many years of your life studying Hebrew and Greek. So trying not to sound prideful in saying this, you need me. But I also need you because I'm somewhere between Grumpy Cat and Eeyore in my personality. <laughs> right? So I need you to emulate the joy of the Lord for me so I can be like... Okay, I'll work on that. That's great. 
We need each other. It's a people word, gospel as well. So let us pray and enter into a communal representation of the gospel. Dear Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our minds with your truth, that we wouldn't get so fixated on words or patterns or or beauty in the scripture itself and, and just sort of only examine it. We ask that you would use the scripture as a mirror and as a searchlight to examine us. We pray, Lord, that in the posture of prayer that we are presently in, and that we are in every time we come to your throne, that we would appreciate the great privilege that you have provided for us in your son, that you have thrown open wide the doors of your throne room, that we may come into your presence with our meager and sometimes foolish requests. We pray, Lord, that in the recompense of your universe, that you will be merciful and just that you will show mercy not only to us, but to all people, showing them your salvation, your gospel, not tearing that, that evil may prosper, but tearing that those who do evil may be redeemed. We pray, Lord, that you would also pay back, that you would restore the system into the way that you want it to be, that we may dwell in the perfection and the holiness that you intended for humanity. We pray, Lord, that our personal relationship with you would be manifest also in a communal relationship with each other, so that as we love you, we may love one another and love those who are around us as according to your spirit. For as in these things we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.